for the past three weeks, I have been talking about the parable of the log. And so far, I have been explaining seven out of the eight obstacles that the Buddha mentioned in this discourse. The log floating down the river Ganges doesn't reach the ocean if it if there is any of these eight obstacles. So it doesn't reach the ocean if the log is caught on the near bank. And the near bank, this refers to having defilements depending on the six internal sense bases. These six internal sense bases are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. The log doesn't reach the ocean if it is caught on the far bank, and the far bank refers to the defilements that come up through the six um, external sense bases. And these external sense bases or sense objects are visible forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tangible objects, and mind objects. And further, the log doesn't reach the ocean if it is submerged under the water. And this means craving and attachment. The log doesn't reach the ocean if it lands on a small island. And this means to be caught by pride and conceit. It doesn't reach the ocean if it is taken by humans. And this means if one mixes with people in an improper way. Further, the log doesn't reach the ocean if it is taken by non-humans. And this means that one is dedicating one's merits in order to be born as a deva. The log doesn't reach the ocean if it sinks into a whirlpool. And this means the indulgence in sense pleasures. And lastly, the log doesn't reach the ocean if it becomes inwardly rotten. And this means to pretend, to pretend that one is virtuous, although one is not. So these are the eight obstacles which prevent a person who is practicing the Dhamma from reaching the ocean of Nibbana. To become inwardly rotten is the last and the eight of the eight obstacles. And as I just mentioned, it refers to be dishonest or to pretend. To pretend that one is virtuous although one doesn't follow a virtuous um, conduct. Or it also means to be virtuous, to pretend to be virtuous and not admitting one's faults. This virtue or moral conduct is called sila in Pali and 
it forms a basic requirement on the spiritual path. In the context of the Buddhist teaching, sila, or virtue, appears in different forms and in different places. For many people, after the initial encounter with the meditation part of the teaching, they will inevitably come to realize that sila forms um, an important part of it and that it is important, that it is not possible uh, to ignore it or um, to leave it out, to go around it. So sila is one of the paramis. It's the second uh, of the ten paramis, the perfections, which are qualities of the heart and mind that need to be cultivated and developed if one wants to become liberated. Sila is also one of the three bases of meritorious deeds. And the other two bases are dana, which is generosity, and bhavana, which means meditation, mental culture. And this includes samatha bhavana, tranquility meditation, and vipassana bhavana, which means insight meditation. The three basic trainings of a, for a Buddhist are the t- trainings in sila, samadhi, and panya, which means the trainings in virtue, in concentration, and in understanding or wisdom. And these three trainings, at the same time, uh, they form the threefold division of the Noble Eightfold Path. Further, in the outline of the stages that the Vipassana meditator goes through in the course of her or his practice, these stages of insight, they are also linked to certain stages of purification. There are altogether seven stages of purification that build up one upon the other. And the first of these seven purifications is the purification of morality, the purification of virtue. In Pali, this is called Sila Visuddhi. Sila, as moral conduct, is defined as the abstention from certain unwholesome physical and verbal actions. In the precepts that we just recited, we have them clearly defined. And so this abstention from certain unwholesome actions, this is called varita sila. Whereas performing wholesome, beneficial actions, this is called charita sila. So therefore, 
Sila should not only be regarded as something that we have to refrain from or to avoid, but it also should be seen as a beautiful practice to engage in wholesome and beneficial actions. We can actually take delight in our own goodness whenever we are performing some actions which are good, helpful and beneficial. Instead of letting our mind be pulled down by what we should refrain from or what we should avoid, we, it can become a joyful and uplifting experience when we see how much good we actually can do. So, for example, the first precept, which is to abstain from killing living beings. If we look at it from the other side, it means to protect life, to cherish life, to hold life dear, and to protect one's and other beings' life from harm, from danger. So, if we abstain from harmful and from harmful bodily and verbal actions, at the same time we offer fearlessness, trust, and confidence to other sentient beings. And this gift of fearlessness, of trust and confidence, is indeed a very precious gift. Therefore, with the or through the act of keeping the precepts which regulate our behavior, we perform constantly wholesome and beneficial deeds. And the offering of fearlessness, trust and confidence can also be seen as a form of dana, a form of practicing generosity. And this kind of dana, by keeping the precepts, be it the five precepts or be it the eight precepts, um, is called the great gifts. And so if we observe the five precepts, it's called the five great gifts. Unlike other forms of dana, generosity, the form of dana, at the form of keeping the precepts, uh, there is not a lot of work or trouble involved. We don't need to be rich in order to buy many things that we can offer. We don't need to have many material possessions in order to offer. By the simple act of refraining of these unwholesome actions, one can gain immense benefit at no cost. Usually, when we think of dana, generosity, we bring it in connection of offering material things. It can be the offering of the four requisites for nuns and monks, which um, consists of food, clothes, shelter, 
and medicine. Or it can be any material offering of clothes or foods for the needy and for the poor. But also offering one's time, one's skills, one's um, knowledge, effort or labor is also considered to be a form of dana. With the support of these material things or services, we enhance the welfare and prosperity of others. In keeping the precepts, our dana takes the form of offering fearlessness and trust, and thereby it safeguards other beings from distress and suffering. By observing, let's say, the first precept of not killing living beings, we not only save the life of one being in the course of our life, but actually we are saving the lives of innumerable beings. For example, living in Burma, I'm confronted with this precept every day, many, many times. Mosquitoes are abundant in Burma, and if I had continued uh, my old habit of just smashing them whenever they land on my arm or any part of my body, then I would have killed many, many thousand mosquitoes already during my 12 years of living in Burma. Because when I was young, our family went regularly on a holiday, for a holiday in the place up in the mountains in Switzerland. We could rent an old farmhouse which was surrounded by pastures where cows were grazing. And so there were always many, many flies around, inside the house, around the house. So when we got there, our parents, they would carry in the luggage and uh, start preparing the dinner. And we kids, together with my brothers, we had to kill the flies which were buzzing around in the house. There were these um, fly swatters, I was told, these things, you go and kill the flies. And so the more flies we killed, the more our parents praised us to be good kids. Poor creatures. They all had to die just because out of our ignorance. So refraining from killing is offering life. And at the same time, it's offering trust and fearlessness, confidence. That's why it is said that the offering of sila is a nobler deed than offering many material things. Sila is a form of dana that doesn't require a lot of time, money, or material possessions. What we need is vigilance and mindfulness 
to keep our verbal and bodily actions pure and wholesome. The benefits from keeping sila are not immediately manifesting as a splendid firework, but they are very powerful and far-reaching, manifesting on, uh, on a subtler level. A blameless conduct regarding one's physical and verbal actions is of great importance in the process of purifying one's mind. As long as the mind is stained by the impurities caused by unwholesome actions, it is not possible to reach any of the higher stages on the spiritual path. As long as the mind is defiled or stained by these gross defilements, there is no space for wisdom to grow. It's like um, sowing seeds on dry and hard soil. If you want the seeds to grow and produce fruit, then we must prepare the ground accordingly. The soil must be humid enough, there must be warmth, sunshine, and we must water it from time to time. And so in the same way, we must prepare the ground for wisdom to grow accordingly. And the first step is the purification of our moral conduct. And this means that we have to abstain from unwholesome actions of body and speech. And on the other side, we must cultivate and develop wholesome and beneficial actions of body and speech. The training in virtue is the first step in this endeavor on our spiritual path, but it must go beyond the scope of morality and lead on to the trainings in concentration and wisdom. The observance of sila leads to harmony on different levels. Most apparently, it leads to social harmony so that people can live together uh, peacefully without uh, creating much harm or suffering to each other. Further, it leads to harmony on the psychological, on the karmic, and on the contemplative level. At the psychological level, it brings harmony to our mind. It protects the mind from the worries and sorries and regrets that come up by transgressing the precepts. On the level of karma, the observance of sila ensures harmony with the law of karma and it ensures uh, favorable rebirth in the course of our, uh, of our existences. And on the last level 
on the contemplative level, Sila helps to establish the purification of the mind, which in turn fosters the growth of wisdom. So the basic five precepts, they give us clear directions of what actions are considered to be wholesome and beneficial. Regarding physical actions, this includes the abstention from killing living beings, the abstention from taking what is not given, or abstention from stealing. It's the abstention from sexual misconduct and the abstention from taking intoxicants which cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. And regarding the verbal actions, it basically includes the abstention from telling lies. But other unwholesome and harmful modes of speech should also be included, such as backbiting and slandering, or using harsh and abusive speech, and gossip or frivolous talk. A Burmese woman who comes to meditate at our forest center in Burma every year, she once told me that her father um, laid stress on the precept of not telling lies. She said that her father kept telling her and her brothers and sisters repeatedly not to lie. She said that if one was truly honest, then it was very difficult, or if not even impossible, to transgress any other of the other precepts and then conceal them. Actually, this is exactly what the Buddha said in one of his short discourses that can be found in the Itivutaka. This is a collection of discourses that can be found in the Kudaka Nikaya. There, in the Sutta, the Buddha said, For the person who transgresses in one thing, I tell you, there is no other evil deed that is not done. Which one thing? This, telling a deliberate lie. These precepts are guidelines for a harmonious relationship with others. In the same way as we do not want to be killed, we shouldn't kill other living beings. Our life is dear to us, and so we should um, protect and respect other beings' lives. Or in the same way, as we don't want that our possessions are taken by force or when they are, uh, that they are stealed. So we shouldn't take things that belong to other beings or we shouldn't take what is not given freely to us. These precepts or guidelines, they appeal to the common sense, reminding people to treat each other in the same way 
as we want to be treated or that we want to be respected. Sayado Uindaka, who is one of my teachers, he mentioned in one of his Dhamma talks given to a group of Burmese meditators that taking the precepts and trying to follow them as good as possible is said to be like it's like being adorned with fragrant flowers. In Burma, women they like to adorn themselves with flowers, especially with fragrant flowers such as jasmine flowers. They put them into their hair. There is one very special flower um, on a on a tree. And this flower blossoms just once a year and just for one day. So that's in the hot season. And when these uh, trees flower, then many, many of the Burmese women, they are very keen to get some of these flowers, which are uh, very fragrant. And so then they put them into their hair. So Saido Uindaka, he said, a person who is keeping the precepts is like, is like a fragrant flower among the scentless flowers. Or Sila, blameless actions of body and speech, is also compared to adornments of various kinds. All over the world, Women and men alike, they like to adorn themselves with different kinds of adornments. Finger rings, necklaces, earrings, toe rings. Um, recently I've seen people piercing their eyebrows, piercing their lips, even piercing their tongues. Um, and these kinds of adornments... Some, they look good on women, whereas they wouldn't look good if a man was wearing them. Some look good on young people. Others look good on elderly people. Some adornments are quite fancy and follow the trend of fashion. Others are quite mm, are not subject to that changing nature of the fashion. But contrary to these adornments, the adornment of Sila looks good on men and women, young and old people. This adornment of Sila is not bound to time and fashion, nor is it dependent on a religious belief. Throughout the world, Whoever is adorned with the garland of Sila is wearing the most precious and most beautiful jewel. And again, Sayado Uindaka compared Sila with cool and clear water. If one feels hot, one sprinkles water over one's face or one goes and has a shower. And after that, 
one cools down and then the body feels refreshed. Or also a fire is extinguished with water. But normal water cannot extinguish the defilements which arise by transgressing the precepts. So normal water cannot extinguish these fires of the defilements burning in our minds. This fire of the defilements can only be extinguished by the cool and cleansing water of Sila. Sila has a cool and soothing um, effect on the mind. And further, it also can turn the murky and dirty water, turn it into clear and clean water. If the mind is overcome with defilements caused through the transgressing of the precepts, then the mind is dirty or murky. But by the power of sila, the dirt, the murky water, can be cleaned, and so then the water or the mind becomes clean and pure again. And lastly, Sayadaw Uindaka compared Sila, that it, he said that Sila is the noblest door. Doors or gates are openings through which one enters and leaves a building, a compound, a palace or a city. In ancient times, cities were surrounded by a wall and normally they had four gates in one of each of the cardinal directions. So they had gates on the northern, the eastern, the southern and the western side. And so, in the scriptures, sometimes Nibbana is referred to as the golden palace of Nibbana. In order to enter the palace wall of the golden city of Nibbana, one has to enter it through a gate. And this gate is the Sila gate. Without being endowed with Sila, Nobody can enter the golden palace of Nibbana. As long as one commits unwholesome actions of body and speech, the gate to the golden city of Nibbana remains closed. In the Buddhist tradition, the act of taking the precepts is not the once-in-a-lifetime act but it is done repeatedly. In the meditation centers in Burma, the Burmese meditators, they take them daily, every day before um, they start to listen to the Dhamma talk. And devout lay people in Burma, they normally take the five precepts daily in front of their shrine at home. And here, we take it twice a week before the Dhamma talk. Maybe some of the yogis, they also take them daily on their own. 
by taking the precepts, be it the five precepts or the eight precepts, we are not immediately endowed with a pure moral conduct. Taking the precepts is more like a commitment to train oneself to abstain from these unwholesome verbal and physical actions. We do not become perfect in one day, but as our experience shows, it is a process that takes a long time. It takes diligence, perseverance, and effort to abandon all these habitual, unwholesome actions. As these unwholesome modes of behavior are so deeply ingrained in our mind, we must remind ourselves time and again to get out of these uh, habitual patterns. That's why each time when we take the precepts, it's like a new reminder of what direction we want to give to our life. The power of sila is manifold and it manifests on different levels. One of the immediate benefits um, is happiness right here and now because the mind is not troubled by worries of having transgressed them. The Buddha said it so beautifully in one of his short discourses. This short discourse has the title, Happy Days. Whatever beings behave righteously by body, speech and mind during the morning, a happy morning will be theirs. Whatever beings behave righteously by body, speech and mind at noon, a happy noon will be theirs. Whatever beings behave righteously by body, speech and mind during the evening, a happy evening will be theirs. In the commentary to the Pali Canon, we have the following story which illustrates the benefits of repeatedly taking the precepts. Once there lived a farmer on the island of Ceylon, or Sri Lanka. As one of his cows was missing, he set out to look for it after breakfast. But first, he went to the nearby monastery and he took the five precepts from the Tera, from the elder monk who was residing there. Then he climbed up the hill in search of his cow. When he reached the top of the hill, he looked around in all the directions to see if he could see his cow. So as he was looking around, a snake came and wound around his leg. Immediately, he lifted his arm in which he was hand holding a big knife and he was ready to hit the snake. But just in that moment, he remembered that he took the five precepts only a couple of hours ago. 
and that included the precept to refrain from killing living beings. And he decided that he rather would give his life than breaking his precepts. And with this decision, he flung his knife into the forest. And having done that, the snake silently wound down from his leg and slid away into the undergrowth. Because we are not yet perfect, we need to remind ourselves time and again. In many cases, if only we would remember, then we would do it. The Buddha's very last words were Apamadena Sampadeta, which is usually translated as strive on with diligence. Apamadena comes from the word apamada, which means not to be lazy, not to be slack, not to be complacent, or not to be heedless. To strive and to be diligent doesn't only mean to put in all one's effort or to strive, um, to strive as much as one can. Because if you are striving without wise attention or without wisdom, then it can actually be dangerous. Effort and energy always need to be paired with wise attention, with wisdom. We should strive and be diligent to improve our mind, but we also must be heedful and watch out for the dangers. A virtuous person can be recognized by her or his faultless and blameless actions of body and speech. And if there is a transgression, a virtuous person is ready to openly admit her or his uh, wrongdoing. A person who is inwardly rotten never admits the faults or pretends to be virtuous, although the course of action is not virtuous at all. Normally, it doesn't take very long before that person's character is revealed, and then with that, people normally do not take such a person very serious anymore. A person who lacks the fragrance of sila is inwardly rotten, and therefore, as Sayado U Indaka put it, only a foul smell comes from that person. In some rare cases, it is possible for a person to become enlightened even if the person has been transgressing some of the precepts until a short time before enlightenment takes place. In these cases, the person realizes the negligence 
and then turns the mind to the Dhamma. And with that, the moral conduct uh, becomes pure. One famous story, or at least it's famous in Burma, is the story of Santati, who was the chief of the army. At one time, there was an uprising in the border area of the kingdom of Kosala, and that happened during, during the Buddha's time. King Kosala sent Santati, the commander-in-chief, to go there and establish order. Santati was able to subdue the rebels and to establish order and peace there. And King Kosala was very pleased with Santati's success, and so he bestowed a boon on him. And this was the boon of seven-day kinghood, which meant that Santati could be the king for seven days and enjoy all the pleasures and all the luxuries which were available for a king. And this also included alcohol. Santati didn't help back um, with enjoying all these luxuries and pleasures and he also drank far too much alcohol. So the result was that for the whole week he was drunk. On the seventh and last day, he went out of the palace riding the royal elephant. He went down to the river in order to have a bath there. On the way back to the palace, he came across the Buddha and some of his disciples. And from sitting up on the back of the royal elephant, he nodded his head, paying respect to the Buddha. At that time, the Buddha's attendant, Venerable Ananda, noticed a faint smile on the Buddha's face. And knowing that there was a special reason for the Buddha to smile, he asked the Buddha why he was smiling. And the Buddha answered, that Santati would become enlightened that very evening after having listened to a verse recited by the Buddha. The people around on the street heard the Buddha's prediction and they thought that this was impossible. So when Santati was back in the palace, he watched the performances of the young and attractive dancing girls. Over the past week, one of these young dancing girls had become his favorite one. And so while these young girls were performing their dances, Santati's favorite girl collapsed on the stage and died on the spot there. Santati was shocked and immediately overcome by great grief and sorrow. 
nobody could console him. And finally, he went to the Buddha to seek relief from his unbearable grief and sadness. And so the Buddha recited a verse for him. This is the verse. Let past defilements wither away. Do not let arise future passions. Don't grasp at the present moment. Then the fires of the defilements will be extinguished. Listening to this verse, Santati's defilements were extinguished one by one, and by the end of the verse, he had become fully enlightened. This story is often told in Burmese Dhamma talks not to encourage people to go and to go out and get drunk or to do any other unwholesome actions, but rather to encourage them that it is never too late to start being mindful or too late to start practicing meditation. Even if a person has done a great number of unwholesome uh, or even cruel actions, it is never too late to change one's behavior. Many of you will probably know the story of Angulimala, who had killed 999 people and was about to kill the last victim, uh, his mother. But the Buddha intervened, made him realize his insanity, and as a result, Angulimala ordained as a monk and later became fully enlightened. Now going back to the story of Santati. In the commentaries it is said that the fact that Santati became enlightened after listening to the verse, it shouldn't be taken that simply listening to a Dhamma talk or to a verse can bring about full enlightenment. The commentary explains that as Santati was listening to the verse, he was also observing his body and mind, which means that he was mindful of his bodily and mental processes. And this led him successively through the different stages of insight and through the different stages of purifications, which resulted in um, fully becoming enlightened. The Buddha's powerful and fully awakened presence could bring about such a radical transformation in Santati's mind in such a short time. As a matter of fact, Practicing meditation is also considered to be a form of sila. While we are practicing meditation, we are aware of the defilements that come up in our mind, but then we do not act them out as verbal 
or physical actions or being mindful of whatever objects arise in our body and mind, there is no room for other defilements to arise at that time. In this way, meditation acts as a safeguard against unwholesome actions of body and speech. The basic purification on the spiritual path is a pure moral conduct and this is called sila visuddhi the purification of virtue if one wants to build a big house or a big pagoda like the shvedagon pagoda in yangon one needs to have a firm and strong base a strong and firm foundation. If the foundation is not carefully and thoroughly done, then it is difficult to build the upper structure of the house or the pagoda, or uh, the upper part then will um, fall down after a short time. So a, a solid and firm base or foundation is of great importance. Among the different purifications that we have to go through in our meditation practice, the first purification is like the base of a pagoda or a big house. And this is the purification of morality, the purification of virtue, sila visuddhi. And this Purification of virtue is obtained by abstention from unwholesome actions of body and speech. And what this entails, I explained a little bit earlier. Moral integrity is not only the base of the meditative practice, it's the base of any religion or belief. All the big religions like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, they have a code of moral conduct as their base. To a certain degree, it's one moral shame and moral fear that one makes refrain from unwholesome actions. But because this moral shame and moral fear is not very strong, and because greed and aversion are much stronger, there is the need for these explicit rules of what is allowable and what not. The Buddha laid stress on the purification of sila because it is a basic requirement for the progress in concentration as well as insight. Only when our moral conduct is purified can the mind become tranquil, clear and serene. And this one, this then leads to the purification of mind. 
And when the mind is clear and purified from that, the view or our standing can be purified. This is the purification of view. I won't go into further detail in this. This would take up too much time. Later on in our practice, sila becomes the natural expression of our understanding, wisdom and compassion. The frame of the precepts then is replaced with our deep understanding of the law of karma and understanding of the connectedness of all living beings. Then our actions are guided by right intention. That means they are guided by renunciation, loving-kindness and non-violence. Before we are able to catch glimpses of reality, we have to prepare the mind. That means we have to clean it out from the grossest defilements. If we are not careful, then we become inwardly rotten. The Buddha said that the person is inwardly rotten when that person pretends to be virtuous, although that person's actions are not virtuous at all. A person who commits unwholesome deeds will never have a pure and clear mind because such a person lives with constant fear and worry that his or her actions may be revealed. So the unwholesome act alone First of all, the unwholesome act alone causes worries and distress to our mind, but then also the attempt to conceal the transgression of the sila further adds more worries, regrets uh, to our mind. By following the precepts, we prepare the ground on which the flowers of wisdom can grow. In the same way as a gardener puts a fence around the newly planted flowers to protect them from snails or other bugs, so a meditator erects the fence of Sila to protect her or his mind from the gross defilement bugs. If the plants can grow without being eaten up by the bugs, then they finally will produce beautiful and fragrant flowers radiating a sweet fragrance all over the place. And in the same way, a meditator's wisdom will develop and grow until lastly the beautiful flower of enlightenment has come forth and radiating a sweet and fragrant uh, scent into all the ten directions. So if we come back to the parable of the log, 
This means, as the log is not rotten inwardly, it is carried down the current of the river all the way until it reaches the ocean. So with this, we have dealt with all the eight obstacles that the Buddha was pointing out in this discourse. As a summary, I will repeat them again. To get caught on the near bank means to have defilements due to the six internal sense bases. To get caught on the far bank, this means having defilements due to the six external sense bases. To be submerged under the water, this means attachment and clinging. To land on a small island means to have pride and conceit. To be taken by humans means to mix with people in an improper way. To be caught by non-humans means to dedicate one's merit to be reborn in the Deva realm. To sink in a whirlpool means to indulge in sense pleasures. And to become inwardly rotten means to be pretend to be virtuous, although one is not. Now, a cowherd named Nanda, who was tending the cows nearby, was also listening to this discourse that the Buddha was giving. The Buddha was sitting in the shade of a huge tree next to the river Ganges, and giving this discourse to a group of monks. So this cowherd, Nanda, he was so inspired by this talk that he also wanted to be carried away by the current of the river. So he approached the Buddha and requested ordination as a bhikkhu. He said, Venerable Sir, I am afraid of being caught on the near bank. I am afraid of being caught on the far bank. I am afraid of being submerged under the water. I want to be carried away by the current of the river and reach the ocean. Please ordain me as a bhikkhu so that I can develop the Noble Eightfold Path, that I can develop the middle current. And the Buddha said, My boy, you are a cowherd. First, you have the duty to bring back the cows and entrust them to their owner. Unless you do that, I cannot ordain you. So the cowherd Nanda did as the Buddha requested and then uh, came back to the Buddha. And then the Buddha ordained him a monk. Then Bhikkhunanda went to the forest, to a secluded place, and developed the Noble Eightfold Path by observing all mental and physical phenomena that were arising in his body and mind. Because he was practicing diligently, he soon was carried away 
by the current of the river and he reached the ocean of Nibbana. With this happy end, I will end this talk and at the same time, this means the end of the talks about the parable of the log. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.